Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Before, uh, before we pray and, and get into the Word, I want to just kind of maybe briefly talk about this. Obviously, uh, why we do certain things. Uh, today is a family worship service, and so what that means is, um, I, I forgot, forget the age group. I want to say it's kindergarten um, all the way up to fifth grade, or, or maybe I got it wrong. From little kids, basically the kids that are, that are back in Ignite now join us in our services. And I know for some of you parents, this might be a headache because now you're trying to focus, but you're also trying to deal with them. But I want to encourage you. I do think once a month it's for our good. And the reason why I think it's for our good is because what we're doing we're inviting them in to come and participate and see what we are doing. I think it's good for children to learn to sit under the Word of God, even though they might not understand everything that we're saying. And so that's why we give them a clipboard, and that's why they color. That's why there's fill uh, in the blanks. And all of these things are tools and resources to equip them to, to learn to sit under the Word and provide you wonderful discipleship opportunities to explain to them why do we sing, why do we confess our sins? Why do we sit at the table? Why do we listen to Pastor Neil for so long because he's so boring and I have no idea what he is is saying? And, And so you can explain to them the importance of the word of the Lord. But then also, I want to provide maybe some clarity when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to the ordinances, because I get this question all the time. Should my children participate in the ordinances? And so I'm not going to tell you what to do as a parent, but rather as a pastor, I want to caution you um, and just simply allowing your children to sit at the table. I do believe that this table is not for everybody. This table are for those who have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is for those who have walked in obedience through baptism and publicly have professed them and have identified with Jesus Christ. So that means that if your child has not yet fully understood the gospel, have not fully confessed their sins and recognized their need for a Savior, have not uh, walked in, in the obedience through baptism, then I would caution you and tell you abstain, let them abstain from the table. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of excluding them. And I would say, no, that's not excluding them. That's including them because guess what that forces you to do? Forces you to sit down. And have a conversation with them and talk about like what the Lord's Supper means, like why we participate in the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to give you a real easy analogy that you can relate to your children between baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to move on because I think it can be a sermon in of itself. Baptism is the wedding. It's the wedding ceremony. And the Lord's Supper is the anniversary. So every time we gather... Because we're united with Christ, we're married to Him, we come to this table and we, in a sense, celebrate our anniversary every week. And in that celebration, we are reminded of who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, the wonderful benefits we have in Jesus Christ. And so with that analogy, disciple your children, and maybe that will bring up conversations about salvation and baptism, and walk them through that, and if you have any questions, or maybe you don't know the answer, come and talk to us, come talk to me, one of the elders, one of the life group leaders that can equip you to have this conversation with your children. 
So let's get into the word. Let me pray for us before we get into the word. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you've made yourself known. I thank you that you've given us your spirit that allows us to understand your word. I thank you for your son that is the living word. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, Lord, as we look at this passage, and this passage is, is really difficult to understand, can you speak to us? Can you help us to understand this text? Can you help us to be able to answer the question of who is Jesus? Can you help us to, to, to have a desire to, to, to be obedient to your will? And as we're obedient to your will, may you stir in us a deeper affection and a desire for you, a better understanding of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, you know everybody in this room. You know what they're thinking, what they're feeling. You know what they're dealing with. You know where they're coming from. Can you take your word and minister to their hearts personally where they are able to look to you find strength in you, be in awe of you, and be overwhelmed by you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, just turn to John, John chapter 7, verse 1. And so we've been uh, about 17 weeks um, through the, the walking through the gospel of John. And so in the gospel of John, what John really is trying to do is he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory. And later on, he's going to show us how Jesus received glory from the Father. And the reason why he wants to show us who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, is to invite his readers, that's us, to believe in him so that we may have life in his name. Now, last week, Jesus was calling the people to come and feast on him. In a metaphorical calling, he was telling the people to come and eat my body and drink my blood. And in this metaphorical calling, really what he was doing, he was inviting people in to come and look to him, to come and believe in him. However, what we've noticed is it becomes clear that those who were listening to Jesus did not want to follow Jesus because they thought that Jesus' teaching was harsh and offensive. Because what they really wanted, Jesus was not going to give it to them. And what Jesus really offered to them, they didn't really want. And they didn't want to receive it. And so this was happening in the previous chapter. Now we find ourselves in chapter 7. Now chapter 7 picks up several months later after the conversation that Jesus had in chapter 6. It was close to the time of the Festival of Shelters. And if you like to maybe read the text ahead, I want to invite you, like, read chapter 7 and notice all the questions that are being asked. Notice all the questions that Jesus is asking. There's almost 20 questions. And, and what's happening is Jesus' ministry is leaving those he encountered curious about who he is and exactly what he came to do. And really, there's one main question in this text. And if you forget everything else, just remember this. The question is, who is Jesus? And this question 
demands a response from every person. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from, what you've experienced. This question demands an answer. Who is Jesus? And if Jesus is who he says he is, then this response is demanded that that impacts our lives and our hearts. So let's look at our text and let's see if we can discover who Jesus is from our text. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So so let's quickly talk about this. Notice John tells us during what time all of this was taking place. This was during the time of the Festival of Shelters, when some of your translations, it will call it the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast was one of the most joyful times in the year for the people of Israel. This feast was, to, was celebrated by the people as they remembered how the Lord provided them, uh, took take care of them as they traveled through the wilderness and lived in tents. It also was a time where the people were celebrating how God was sending the rain and providing a harvest for them. And so really what it was, it was a time to celebrate uh, the faithfulness and the provision of the Lord. And the historians believe like this was probably one of the most popular festivals that drew the largest crowd. That the faithful Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festivity. And so Jesus' brothers, in a sense, challenged Jesus. They tell Jesus, hey, you need to go up to Judea, to Jerusalem, and show yourself to everybody since everybody is going to be there so that they can follow you and then you can get the public recognition that you are after. Now, there are several motives behind this challenge or reasons why the brothers are challenging Jesus. More than likely, they are aware of the large crowd that was following Jesus, but now all of a sudden they have stopped following Jesus. And since this festival was the most popular festival that drew the largest crowd, they were thinking, why don't you just go up there, reveal yourself, perform a couple miracles so that all the people can see, and then you can recapture the audience that you once had. In addition, Jerusalem was like central to the Jewish life because of the temple. And so if you really want to make an impact in Jerusalem among the people, you have to go to the capital. And this is where you influence everybody. And so Jesus' brothers wanted Jesus to show himself to the world. But as we've read read the, uh, the Gospel of John so far, we've already learned that Just because Jesus shows himself to people, just because Jesus performs a miracle, that does not necessarily mean that people would put their faith in him and believe in him. And John has already shown us that that the world cannot see Jesus without ceasing to be the world. 
And so in one sense, Jesus has no intentions of showing himself to the world. And yet, in another sense, in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to most dramatically reveal himself. Not in the miracles of what his brothers thought, but rather in the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, where he reveals himself to Jerusalem, where he becomes the Savior of the world. It's at the cross of Christ where he draws all men and women to himself. And so John provides for us an explanation of why Jesus' brothers were challenging him because they did not believe in him. They saw him as their older brother who's a wannabe rabbi who wants to perform miracles and draw a large audience, but they did not see the significance of who Jesus truly is. And look at how Jesus responded to their challenge in verse 6. Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. So so Jesus' brothers projected to him, basically they're telling him, if we were you, this is what we think you should be doing. Without really recognizing the uniqueness of Jesus. And this is why Jesus tells him, look, my time has not arrived, but for you any time is right. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, you're free to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. You can go to the feast whenever you can, but I cannot. Why can't Jesus do whatever he wants to do? Because Jesus is under a special constraint. Because he does not belong to himself, but rather to God the Father. And so when Jesus says, your time is always at hand, what he is saying is, you, in a sense, do not belong to God, but you belong to the world. And because you belong to the world, you can do whatever you want to. And because you belong to the world, the world loves you because the world loves its own. But because my time is not at hand, because I do not belong to the world, I belong to God, the world hates me. And not only does it hate me because I don't belong to it, the world also hates me because I testify to what it does is evil. So if you're taking notes, here's the very first thing we learn about who Jesus is. Jesus belongs to God and testifies that the works of the world is evil. So in other words, really easy to understand. Who does Jesus belong to? Does he belong to the world? No, he belongs to God, which means he's under special constraint by God. He can only act when God tells him to act. He doesn't belong to the world. The world hates him. Because he also testifies that what the world does is evil. 
And this is why Jesus will not rise to the challenge of his brothers and why for the brothers any time is right because his brothers, they belong to the world. They do not know God's agenda. They do not listen to God's word. They do not even recognize when God's word and the flesh stands in front of them. In other words, they are completely divorced from God's divine appointment. So any time for them will do. And when Jesus says that my time is not at hand, what he is saying in a sense that my schedule is not regulated by me, but rather is regulated by the Father. And this is why he declines to go, because his time has not yet come. And so Jesus' response to his brothers is not that he is saying he's not planning to stay in Galilee forever, but because he belongs to God, because he's under special constraint, because his schedule is regulated by God the Father, he is only going up to the feast when God the Father tells him to go, not when his brothers tell him to go. And the reason why it's so important for us to understand is because when we're going to keep on reading the next verse, we're going to find out eventually he goes up to the festival. But what I don't want us to do is have this misunderstanding of Jesus just being stubborn and not doing what his brothers are telling him to do. Because so many of us, when our brothers tell us to do certain things, what do we do? We're like, I'm not going to do it. And then the second they walk away, what do we do? We end up doing it. But this is not what's going on. Jesus is saying, I don't belong to the world. I don't do what the world tells me. I belong to God. I can only do what God tells me to do. My schedule is dictated by him. And so this is why he's saying, for you, you can do whatever you want to. But for me, my time has not yet arrived. Let's see what happens in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, after his brothers had gone up to the festival... Look at it. Look what it says. Then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowd. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he is deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking in public about him for the fear of the Jews. So it appears that God the Father signaled to Jesus that now is the time for him to leave Galilee and to go up to Jerusalem. And notice that his journey is marked by discretion. In other words, he's at the festival in secret. What did his brothers tell him to do? Go in secret or go public? Go in public so it's the opposite of what his brothers are telling to do and again it's not because he's stubborn but because who is regulating him who does he belong to who does he walk in obedience to God the Father now in our text you're going to notice there are two kinds of people we we read about the Jews and we read about the crowds And I think it's important for us to understand because there's two kinds of audiences. I think it's best for us to understand the Jews uh, as the religious authorities. They were, in a sense, hoping that the feast will draw Jesus out, that he would leave Galilee, go back to Jerusalem. That means that, uh, that, that he would be under their authority and then they could possibly arrest him. 
So they were hostile towards Jesus. And then you had the crowd, the non-religious authority people. And they weren't really hostile towards Jesus. They were more curious about Jesus, and they had different opinions. Some people saw the miracles. They saw the good results from the miracles and believed he is a good man. Others, on the other hand, said, no, he's a deceiver. He is not a good man, but a deceiver. But whatever their opinion was, the crowd was whispering among themselves, which indicates to us that maybe they were not allowed to talk out loud about Jesus among themselves, for maybe the Jewish authorities did not permit them to do so. But either way, notice what they're talking about. What's our question? Who is Jesus? Is he a good man? Or is he a deceiver. Now again, when Jesus went to the festival, did he go in open public or in secret? He went in secret. But now in verse 14, we're going to read that all of a sudden he appears in public. Look at what happens in verse 14. It says, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he has been trained? So here's the question that we have. Okay, why does Jesus go to the festival in secret and then all of a sudden he goes to the temple for all to see and teaches publicly? What do we have to understand about Jesus so far? Who is he? Who does he belong to? He doesn't belong to the world. He belongs to God. He's under God's direction. He only does what God tells him to do. So what we have to understand is Jesus' focus is not concerned with his privacy. His focus is to do the will of God and to walk in obedience to God. So he comes And it's because he's under the direction of God, he appears in secret, and when God tells him to teach, he publicly teaches. And look at the crowd's response. Just like the previous crowd that we read about in chapter 6 in Galilee, now this crowd in chapter 7 of Jerusalem are amazed. But why were they so amazed? Well, it tells us, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? In other words, they are listening to the teachings of Jesus and say, man, this guy is an expert. This guy is a master in teaching scripture. But he had no formal training. He didn't go to any special school. How is it that a man like that can teach with such authority, could handle the scripture so masterfully, without any training. And to that, Jesus insists of where his teaching is from. Now, hopefully so far the text was somewhat easy to understand. Now we're getting into the very difficult part. I'm going to try to explain it as best as I can, so we've got to put our thinking caps on and work really hard in this text, okay? Look at verse 16. 
So remember, what is Jesus addressing? Jesus is addressing the amazement of the crowd. How can this man teach with such authority and handle Scripture so masterfully without any training? Jesus says this in verse 16. Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but, the, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Now, now let's just be honest. We feel like Jesus is like all over the place. It's like, what does he mean by that? Like we get the first verse that where's his teaching from? His teaching is from God. But what in the world does he mean? Where's verse 17 and then 18? And then he randomly just goes to the law of Moses and charges them with wanting to kill him. Like, like how does all of this fit together? Because remember, they want to know who Jesus is and where's his teaching from. So the, the second thing we can learn about who Jesus is, this is the, the easy way to understand, is Jesus insists if you're taking notes that his teaching is God's teaching. His teaching is God's teaching because he was sent by God. And we get that from verse 16. My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. So in other words, who sent Jesus? God did. And whose teaching does Jesus' teaching belong to? Belongs to God. So in other words, we can learn from that 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 Jesus' teaching is God's teaching because he was sent by God. Now, real quick, the best way to understand this is this. They're amazed that Jesus had no formal training. So where did he learn all of this? Jesus says, I learned that from God himself. Now, in that tradition, and even in our tradition, when you have a speaker, or if you write a paper, a research paper, you have a thesis, which is your main point, and then when you're trying to make your main point, you're trying to bring in resources that's going to help you make your main point. So, for example, when the Jews, back in the day, the rabbis taught, what they would do is, as they would teach uh, the Bible, they would say, and so-and-so rabbi also agrees with me that this is what it's saying. In other words, what they're trying to say is my teaching comes from a long line of traditional health beliefs. And if they did not do it, the people would think, well, who does this guy think he is? He's just arrogant. Unfortunately, in that time, it was normal to quote somebody else to, to kind of uh, support your teaching. And in today's culture, you can just go on the internet and whatever you say is true. But back in the day, if you want to make a point, you better have evidence. You better have facts. You better make, have scholarly research to support your evidence. But when Jesus is teaching the text, he's not quoting rabbis. He is speaking as if he's using no authoritative uh, sources to prove his point. And this is why they're so amazed. And so when Jesus is saying, 
My teaching belongs to God because I was sent by God. He is saying that the authority I'm teaching with and the truth that I am telling you is not man's truth, it's God's truth. Thus, it is my truth. This is why when Jesus teaches, he doesn't necessarily say, Scripture says so, but I say so. In the Sermon of the Mount, he would say, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. So in other words, what Jesus is doing in his teaching, because it belongs to God, because he was sent by God, he speaks with such an authority, not pointing to other sources to help his authority, but rather in his own authority because of the authority that God has given him. Everybody understands that. Probably not, but that's fine. We'll move on. So here's the question. Jesus, his teaching is from God because he was sent by God. They wanted to know where's his teaching from. But now here's the question. How do we know Jesus is telling the truth? How do we know that his teaching is actually from God, which is God's teaching because he was sent by God? Look at verse 17, and I think this is the most, this is the difficult verse to understand, and I was trying to wrap my mind around it to explain it to you in a sense, in a way that makes sense, but read verse 17 again. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Now, the his is not yours, but rather whose will, but rather God's will. So in other words, Jesus is saying that if you want to know where my teaching is from, if you want to know whether I was sent by God, it doesn't start with you just examining the facts and determining for yourself whether what I'm saying is true or not, but rather it starts with you desiring to do God's will, which is a commitment of faith. Now, here's the part that's very confusing, and so I'm trying to figure out how to explain it to you. For many of us, we grew up under the tradition that in order to discover truth, what do you do? You look at the facts, you look at the evidence, and then what do you do? You determine for yourself whether it is true or not. This, white, this, this wall is white. What do you do? How do you know it's white? You look at it. Well, it's kind of white. I don't know. Guy's a liar. I don't believe it's white. I looked at it. And I cannot determine whether it's white or not. But when it comes to spiritual things, what Jesus is implying is we simply cannot be outside of truth and determine by ourselves what's true or not. Why? Because we are finite, which means we're limited. There's only so many things we can do. And also because we are sinful. So in a sense, what Jesus is implying to these people, if you really want to know where my teaching is from, if you really want to know whether I'm teaching on my own accord, it starts with you desiring to do God's will. It's a commitment not of doing, but a commitment of faith. 
It is only then, once you've committed by faith and desiring to do God's will, only then will you be able to determine with his teaching from God. And this is not a self-determination, but rather it is God illuminating, opening up your eyes, making known where this teaching is from. And I think the really hard part for us is because we grow up knowing that we, uh, we're being taught that we can determine truth just by looking at it because we're smart enough, the reality of it is we're not. We cannot on the outside analyze God and determine whether He exists or not because we're sinful. We're limited. God is so much bigger than just the object lesson that we look at. We, in a sense, need to enter into this truth, desiring to do His will first. Then God, by His grace, makes itself known to Him. And Jesus reveals the reason why His opponents who are outside of truth are unable to assess His teaching rightly. Verse 18 says this, The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. In other words, what he is saying, the one who prides himself on being his own person, he speaks on his own. Why? Because he's seeking his own glory. Like, how do you know a person belongs to God and is teaching God's teaching? He's not his own man, and he's not teaching for his own ego. And what did Jesus show us? Who does Jesus belong to? He belongs to God. He's restricted to God. He's committed to do the will of God. His teaching is from God because he's not in it for his own glory. The things he's committed to is to do God's will for the glory of God and God alone. So, so why can we trust Jesus to tell us that what he is telling us is true? Because he's not some religious deceiver or a respected religious teacher that kind of have mixed motives. His trust, he is trustworthy because his motives are pure. He's not trying to persuade us and use any means as possible to convince us to believe in God. Because he even rejected that when his brothers told him, go make yourself known. What did he do? No, it's not my time. And by doing that, he is saying, I am not committed to myself for my own glory. I am committed to God, to do the will of God alone, for the glory of God alone. So in other words, the third thing we learn about Jesus, not only is his teaching God's teaching because he was sent by God, but the third thing is, who is Jesus? His teaching is God's teaching because he is committed to do God's will. He is committed to do God's will, and because he's committed to do God's will, it leads to God's glory alone. Now, Let's try to simplify this. The crowd was amazed because Jesus was teaching with such authority. He had no formal training. So in a sense, they're asking Jesus through their amazement, where does your teaching come from? Jesus says, my teaching comes from God because I was sent by God. And how do we know Jesus' teaching is from God? Because of his motive. What's his motive? To do the will of God. 
What's his goal? For the glory of God. And how can we, how can the audience rightfully assess Jesus' teaching? Not with assessing the teaching itself, but first committing to do God's will first. Then God will reveal as we assess. Everybody understand that part? Let's move on to verse 19. Now, verse 19 kind of seems like, like going off topic, but if you follow the thought process, it doesn't. Verse 19 says, Didn't Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? So in a sense, remember, what Jesus is trying to show them is you can't determine where my teaching is from if it doesn't start with you doing the will of God. So now he goes to Moses for two reasons, because where do you find God's will? In the law. God's will is revealed to us through the law of Moses. Both Jews, uh, everybody would agree that is where God has revealed his law. And then, what does Jesus claim them to do in a question? He is, he is saying, didn't Moses give you the law? In other words, in Greek, what he is doing, he's making, uh, in the English, it's a question, but in the Greek language, it's a statement. Moses has indeed given you the law. And yet, what are you trying to do? You're trying to kill me. So what is Jesus implying by that? Are they keepers of the law or breakers of the law? They are breakers of the law. And because they are lawbreakers... They cannot understand or assess Jesus' teaching because they are not committed to keeping God's will. And this is why he's pointing to the law. He's charging them as lawbreakers. And the crowd, made up of more than authorities, instantly reject this charge. Look at verse 20. They say, you have a demon, the crowd responded, who is trying to kill you. In other words, Jesus, you're paranoid, you're delusional. No one is trying to kill you. And look at verse 21, we're almost done. It says this, I performed one work, and you're all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath? If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. So follow the, the train of thought here. Where is Jesus' teaching from? It's from God. How do they know whether it's from God? Because he's committed to do God's will, and they're not committed to do God's will because they are lawbreakers. But now the thought continues, because now Jesus is referring to a miracle that he performed. Well, what miracle was he, did he perform? Was he referring to where they were all amazed at? It's the miracle of when Jesus healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. And the reason why the people were amazed, they were not amazed because they saw a paralyzed man walking. They were amazed that Jesus would actually, in front of all the religious authorities, tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk and carry his mat on the Sabbath. Because that's something you do not do. So what Jesus is doing, in a sense, he, he brings them up because he knows their heart. 
They want to accuse him as law-breaking as well. So he brings up the issue of circumcision. He says, where does circumcision come from? Moses or the patriarchs? Abraham. Abraham. But regardless of where it came from, he puts a hypothetical. He says, God commands you to circumcise a child on the eighth day and to observe the Sabbath. But here's the problem. Let's say, for, for, for example, that circumcision falls on the Sabbath. What do you do? Do you obey and circumcise the child and then, in a sense, break the Sabbath? Or do you keep the Sabbath and not circumcise the child? This is the dilemma Jesus brings up. And what Jesus is not implying that you have to break the law one way or the other, but rather what he's implying is that there are certain laws that takes precedence over other laws. And because of the, the, the teachers of the law, what they've done is because of the weight of this law, circumcision takes precedence over the Sabbath. Now, what some people think by Jesus' reasoning is he's trying to convince them that they're lawbreakers and that the law that he broke was no big deal because they do the same thing. Here's why this interpretation doesn't work. Because if Jesus broke the law, what does that mean? He's a sinner. He's a lawbreaker. He can't die for us. He cannot save us. But what Jesus is doing is just like you, have certain laws that take precedence over other laws because of the authority that God has given you, I and my own authority have taken certain laws that are precedence over others, which means the law of loving your neighbor as yourself over the Sabbath. What do you do when you see a neighbor that is in need? Do you walk away and say, I'm sorry, but I can't do anything. It's on the Sabbath. No. Loving your neighbor takes precedence over observing the law, observing the Sabbath. And this is the point that Jesus was trying to make. And then he gives an instruction in verse 24. He says, stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgments. So, I, I, like I said, this text is very difficult, so let's try to kind of Put it all together with this last verse 24. Sometimes when you're confused in the details, it's best to kind of take a step back and zoom out and see what's happening and then zoom back in. So let's wrap it up. Take a step back, zoom out, and then we'll zoom back in. What's the point of the entire passage we just read? What's the main question that we need to address? Who is Jesus? That's the main question. So far... What has John showed us about Jesus? Jesus, does he belong to the world or to God? He belongs to God. Which means, because he belongs to God, he does the work of God. Does the world love him or hate him? The world hates him because he doesn't belong to the world. And the world hates him because he testifies that what the world is doing is evil. Jesus also showed us that his teaching... It's not his own teaching, but his teaching is God's teaching. Why? Because he was sent by, sent by God. And that his teaching is also God's teaching, because not only was he sent by God, but he's committed to do the will of God for the glory of God. This is what we've learned about Jesus. Okay? 
So here's the question. All of us have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Just the facts that I just uh, gave you, that might help you answer the question, but you personally all have to personally ask and answer the questions. Now, our culture will say, where do you begin answering the question? Our culture will say, look at the facts. Look at the evidence and then just make your judgment. But in a sense, what Jesus is saying is no, because he is accusing the Jews of this. He is telling the Jews, you, you're looking at the facts, you're looking at the evidence, and you're making a judgment on your own. And in other words, you are making a judgment on mere appearances. You saw me tell a man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. That's the evidence that you looked at. And what was your conclusion? You're a lawbreaker. So what you're doing is you're simply relying on yourself to look at the facts and make a determination of who I am. And you're missing the point because your judgment is mainly on appearances. But rather what Jesus is doing is don't make a judgment on appearances, but rather make a judgment on a righteous, according to a righteous judgment. In other words, what he means by that is that Jesus teaches that it begins not with looking at the facts, but it begins with one's commitment to do God's will first. It is a commitment of faith if that was the audience's approach in a sense what they're saying is look we don't know who this jesus is we don't know where he's from we don't know what he came to do but in our hearts is a desire to do god's will and to honor god with all that we have we might not understand all the the, the complications of what it means to honor god what it means to be obedient to his will but certainly there's a desire inside of us if that was their approach God, by his grace, would have opened up their eyes and they would have seen Jesus in his actions, not as a lawbreaker, but as a law fulfiller, not the one breaking the Sabbath, but the one being Lord of the Sabbath and circumcision will be fulfilled in him. So in other words, all of you, big and small, have to answer the question, who is Jesus. Where does it start? It doesn't start with you looking at the facts. It starts with you committing to do God's will. It's a commitment of faith, which means you might not understand everything it entails, but you're committing to do it. And in a sense, what that means is, how do we approach God? We approach God in humility. So when we commit to do God's will first, that is an approach of humility. The world's approach to God is I will look at God from the outside and I will determine whether he is God or not. Is that an approach of humility or pride? That's the approach of a pride. 
If you're simply saying, I'm going to look at the facts and then make my own conclusion, that is an approach of pride. But an approach of humility is I'm committing to do his will, committing in faith, trusting as I in humility approach God that he will make himself known to me so that I can understand and believe whether he is God or not. Who is Jesus? That is the question that we all have to answer. And it has significant implications. And I plead with you, humble yourself before the Lord. Start with a desire of committing to his will. And if you don't have the desire, ask the Lord to give you that desire. It doesn't mean you're going to understand everything. It doesn't mean you're going to walk in perfect in obedience. But what it does mean is you're going to approach God in a humble way. And when you do, he will lift you up in due time. He will make himself known. And then you'll be able to openly and honestly say, who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and His purpose was to come and live a life I could not live and die a death I was supposed to die. Let me pray for us, and then we get to sit at the table. Our Heavenly Father, I thank You that You sent Your Son to make Yourself known to us, that when we look to your son, we see you. And his very teaching was your teaching. His very word was your word. And thank you that we've received this word. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to walk in humility. Help us desire to do your will. And Lord, for those who do not believe in you, for those who are skeptic, for those who think they can determine the facts for themselves, can you humble them? Can you help them to realize their inability to know you because you're so much bigger that we need you to know you? Can you stir in their hearts a desire to do your will? And can you help them to ask the question of who you are, Lord Jesus? And also to answer the question of who you are, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that in our walk with you, that you would help us to constantly look to you as we submit ourselves to your teachings, as we follow you, as we discover more of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready to sit at the table, We've already talked last week that life is, is full of distractions. There's days that we fix our eyes on Christ and, and we walk in obedience, and there's days that we take our eyes off of Christ. And not only do we not walk in obedience, but we also feel defeated. We feel like we don't measure up. We feel like we're not good enough. We're discouraged. We're plagued by guilt, and we're just overwhelmed in life. And what the table does... It's a visual representation. 
as I've ministered to you uh, with the word that has impacted your ears and your mind, now we get to sit at the table that impacts your eyes, it impacts your hands, it impacts your taste. It is a reminder for us of who is Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He came on this earth, took on flesh, and lived a life we could not live. He, he walked in perfect obedience, fulfilled the law, because we were lawbreakers and we deserved death. And Jesus, by his obedience, took our place on the cross, died in our place. And so we're reminded of the life he lived. We're reminded of the death that he died. We're reminded of now because of Jesus through faith, the relationship that we have, the covenant that he's established with us with his blood. And that encourages our hearts, that ministers to our soul. And so those times that we're discouraged and we feel like we're falling short, we come back to the table and we fix our eyes on Christ. When we as believers wrestle with the question of who is Jesus and we wrestle with doubt, we come to the table and we fix our eyes on Christ. We come and to desire to do his will. As we meditate on the truth of who he is and what he's done for us and now the benefits we have in him. But this table is not open for everybody. This table is for those who profess Christ as the Lord and Savior, for those who belong to Him. And it doesn't mean we exclude you and you're not welcome here, but this table, there's a wonderful privilege for those in Christ. And what that even reminds us as Christians of what a wonderful privilege we get to sit at the table, not because we're awesome. In fact, we're not. We get to sit at the table because of what He has done. Because we believe in him that what he's done for us is true and right. We simply receive what he's given us. And because of that, we can freely sit here. And so one of the things, that, uh, again, I, I want you to meditate on as we distribute these elements. Like, like think about who Jesus is. Think about the life that he lived for you. Think about the death that he died for you. Think about him being the king of all kings, the creator, the sustainer of the world, the one who is from God, whose very word is the word of God, who is so committed to do the will of God for the glory of God that God in return glorified him above anything else this is who jesus is and so think about that as we distribute these elements and for those that maybe you're wrestling in your faith you haven't believed yet let these elements pass but also meditate on asking the question who is jesus who is jesus to you do you know him have you experienced him has he saved you like these are things meditate on it and if you need help to, to, to process that, come and see us after the service. We would love to walk with you and encourage you in your journey. But it's a question that we all have to ask and is a question we all have to answer. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. I'm just so humbled and just amazed that when we look into the table, like, what a picture of grace. Like, we do not get to hand and hold these elements because of our performance. 
It's by God's grace. And think about when did God's grace start? It started right from the beginning, giving us a desire to do His will. His grace opening up our eyes to see who God really is, to be able to answer the question of who Jesus is, to see the significance behind his teaching. It's by his grace that we're able to respond in faith. It's by his grace that that Jesus came and took on flesh and lived a life that we could not live. It's by his grace that he died on the cross for wretched sinners, undeserving, that were hating him at that time. It's by his grace that he stayed on the cross and he said, forgive them, Father, because they do not know what they are doing. It's by his grace that we can come and sit at this table week in and week out and we're reminded of Jesus' body that was given to us, his blood that was shed for us. What a wonderful grace. And it's by his grace that he's coming back to make all things new. It's by his grace that we would sit at a physical table with him where faith is no longer needed because we will be feasting with Jesus Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. What a picture of grace. And so when you look at this bread that represents his body, we eat it and we're overwhelmed by his grace as we remember what he's done for us. Take it and eat it. When we look at the cup, we're reminded of his grace, his blood that was shed for us, the new covenant we have with God. Take it in remembrance, drink it and marvel at him, at his grace. Why don't you just take some time right now and just thank the Lord for his incredible grace that he's lavished on you. Thank the Lord for how he's revealed truth to you and opened up your eyes. Thank the Lord for all the benefits you have now in Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord for the constant reminder that you're not your own, but that you belong to him. that you are sons and daughters of the Most High, heirs to the kingdom. Lord, we thank you for everything. Thank you through your word, how you encourage our hearts, how you make yourself known. Thank you that we don't have to speculate on who Jesus is but that you've made it known to us. And so, Lord, help us to continually walk in humility before you. Help us to cling to the cross of Christ. Help us to rest in you and trust you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand, let's worship our King.